You're listening to the Rethinking Hell podcast, where evangelical Christians discuss what the Bible says about hell and put conventional and controversial views to the test. To continue the discussion and find more resources on this topic, you can visit us online at www.rethinkinghell.com. Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of the Rethinking Hell podcast. I'm your host for today, Chris Date, and I'm joined today by Dr. David Reagan. Dr. Reagan is the founder and director of Lamb and Lion Ministries, host of the international television program Christ in Prophecy, editor of the bi-monthly Lamplighter magazine, and author of several books about Bible prophecy. But he joins me today to discuss primarily one specific area of prophecy and eschatology, and that's the nature of hell, about which he writes in his 2010 book, Eternity, Heaven or Hell. Thanks so much for joining me, Dr. Reagan. Well, thank you, Chris. It's good to be with you. I'd like to begin by getting to know a little bit about you and your ministry, uh, and at the end of the interview, I'll ask you where listeners can, can go to find you online. But for now, can you tell us about the message and mission of Lamb and Lion? Sure, Chris. I appreciate you asking that. Um, for the first uh, 20 years of my career life, I uh, was a professor of international law and politics at the university level. And then in 1980, <clears throat> the Lord uh, placed a call on my life to give up my academic career and step out in faith and uh, start uh, preaching the soon return of Jesus. And since uh, the ministry I founded was a ministry whose purpose is to teach the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, I decided to call it Lamb and Lion because those are the two great prophetic images of the Messiah in the Old Testament. The prophet said he would come first as a suffering lamb and he would return as a conquering lion. Mm. So since 1980, uh, we have uh, been teaching Bible prophecy and proclaiming that we are living in the season of the Lord's return. Okay. And like I said when I introduced you, you've authored a number of books, booklets, articles, but your ministry also produces the bi-monthly magazine Lamplighter and a weekly television program, Christ and Prophecy. And it looks like each issue of this magazine and each episode of this television program are available for download online. Can you tell us about those and why listeners might want to check them out? Well, yes. Uh, the magazine is put out uh, every other month, so we put out six issues a year, 20 pages long, and it goes into depth about uh, various issues of Bible prophecy. And as you said, you can get it free of charge uh, by email. Uh, if you want it by mail, there is a small charge, but either way you can sign up at our website. With regard to the television program, it's a weekly program broadcast on four national networks right now, so it's on almost every day of the week uh, on some network. And it's a 30-minute program, and we have a variety of formats there. Uh, many of the programs are shot in Israel. Uh, some of them are uh, teaching programs. Uh, the majority, I would say, are probably interview programs. We interview a lot of people, very interesting people, and uh, nearly always the interviews focus on one of two subjects, either Bible prophecy or apologetics. Hmm. Two, two very good <laughs> subjects to study. That's right. Uh, one of the things that I find really fascinating about you is that it seems to me that most dispensationalists uh, would seem very opposed to any alternative to the traditional view of hell, and I hope you don't mind me using the word dispensationalist to refer to you. Um, and they would say that conditionalists are sort of spiritualizing away texts that they think ought to be taken literally. Uh, in fact, that's a question you address in the book, and you know we're going to come back to that in a little bit. But, but first, can you summarize for our listeners where it is that you stand right now when it comes to the nature of hell, whatever, whatever what your view is? Sure. Uh, first of all, I uh, do not consider myself to be a dispensationalist. I have a dispensational viewpoint concerning Bible prophecy, hmm. but I disagree with dispensationalists on a lot of other uh, points that they uh, make. So I've never really considered myself to be one, even though I do have that viewpoint hmm. of end-time Bible prophecy. And uh, with regard to my view of hell that I've developed through the study of Scripture, uh, my view is that hell is a very real place, 
that it was created for Satan, by, uh, for Satan and his angels, uh, that the, it is the ultimate destiny of the unsaved, that uh, they are temporarily in Hades right now, waiting to be put into hell, that nobody's in hell right now, and uh, that at the end of the millennium, the unsaved will be resurrected, they will be judged, they will be consigned to hell, they will suffer for a time in proportion to their sins, and then they will suffer destruction. And uh, I don't think any of that is a spiritualization of Scripture. In fact, I think that those who have the traditional view are the ones who really spiritualize. They have to spiritualize a lot of things to come up with a traditional view. The only thing that those who have uh, the viewpoint we have, which is called the conditionalist view, the only thing that that we spiritualize is what the Bible uh, puts in a symbolic way, Mm. uh, such as the smoke of Edom goes up forever. Well, you can go to Edom, you don't see smoke going up, so that's (laughs) obviously a symbolic term and has to be interpreted symbolically. Yeah, no, I agree. So, So then you would characterize your view as either conditional immortality or annihilationism. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, many of us conditionalists, perhaps even most, were once committed traditionalists. Uh, although some were unsettled by the traditional view of hell, their commitment to the authority of Scripture really forced them to accept it, and, and that's to be, commend- uh, to, commend- to be commended. Uh, of course, it would turn out that that same commitment uh, is what would lead them to embrace conditional immortality. But, but I bring this up because the other thing I find very interesting about you is, if I read your book correctly, this conversion from traditionals, uh, traditionalism to conditionalism isn't something that you necessarily experienced, because in your book you write, I have never been able to fully embrace the traditional viewpoint of conscious eternal punishment. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, you know, as a lifelong Bible student, teacher, and preacher, what is it that you did believe and teach about hell before you embraced this view you now hold? Well, I was born up, uh, born up I was, I was <laughs> born and raised in a uh, very uh, conservative church, and uh, they taught the traditional view of hell. When they ever, whenever they mentioned it, they very rarely was ever mentioned, but when it was, they taught the traditional view, so that was the only view I knew. And uh, for for many many years, probably until I was 30 years old, I never I didn't even know there was any other viewpoint. Um, so I held that view really until the 1970s. But I was never easy with it, Chris. Mm. I was always very very uneasy with it. And the reason was because the Bible teaches over and over and over that the God of this universe is a God of justice. And I found it hard to believe that a God of justice would torment a person eternally for a temporal sin. Let me just give you an illustration that occurred to me many, many years ago. Let's take a 16-year-old boy who gets his driver's license. Now, according to um, the Jewish tradition, a person becomes, uh, uh, you know, uh, responsible for his sins at about the age of 13. Uh, of course, the age of accountability can vary, but that was the, the traditional age. So here, let's just say that he became accountable at age 13. At age 16, three years later, he gets his driver's license, goes out, drives recklessly, and is killed. Hmm. He's never become a Christian. He's been responsible for his sins for three years. Do we really believe that a God of justice is going to take that boy responsible for his sins for three years and torment him for Hmm. eternity? This turns God into a monster. It, it, it turns God into a, uh, you know, the, the director of an Auschwitz uh, concentration camp. And I just could not believe that this God of justice would do that. So I always had this uneasiness in my soul about the traditional view. And then when I really started studying the scriptures about this, I found out why I should be uneasy about it. Well, so tell us about, then, uh, about that then. What, what was the turning point for you with regard to your change of view about hell? Well, that's very interesting, Chris, because the turning point for me was in the 1970s when I went to a a Bible conference in Nashville, Tennessee, and one of the persons at that conference was a man I'd heard of but never met. 
His name was Edward Fudge. He was not even a speaker. He was just there with the rest of us at the conference. And I had lunch with him one day, and he just asked me, point blank, what do you believe about hell? And I told him, and he said, well, have you ever really examined the scriptures about that? And I said, well, not really. I just thought that was the traditional view that all Christians have. He said, it is, but you need to examine the scriptures. Go home and search the scriptures. He didn't try to convert me to a viewpoint or anything of that nature. He just planted a seed and said, go test it by the Scripture. Well, I'm a person who believes everything should be tested by the Scripture. Hmm. So that was the beginning of my turning point. Now, for some of your listeners, maybe they don't know who Edward Fudge is, but he later became the major proponent of uh, the conditionalist viewpoint. And then the other thing the other thing that happened was that one of the persons I respected most was C.S. Lewis. I had read just about everything he had ever written, and I think it was in his book on pain and suffering, the, the problem of pain, that he suddenly in the middle of the book said, I've always been bothered by the fact that Jesus said that those who uh, do not accept him will perish. He said, now, how can you be perishing for eternity? Eternity, You either perish or you don't perish. And that was another seed that was planted. And I got to thinking, you know, that, that's really true. You either perish or you don't perish. Incidentally, later on in life, when I was studying uh, C.S. Lewis in detail, I found out that his father-in-law who was a Presbyterian preacher, was a very, very strong conditionalist. And so I suppose, suppose that C.S. Lewis was, exposed, was uh, exposed to that viewpoint through his father-in-law. That's very interesting. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Edward Fudge. He's been instrumental in many of our uh, in many of our thinking, and in fact, we interviewed him as the very first episode of this podcast. So I do oh, think our, right. yeah, I think our listeners probably do know who he is. Uh, now, in a Christian culture, at least in America, probably abroad as well, in which conditionalism is seen by many as a very dangerous doctrine, even possibly heretical, uh, and in which conditionalists are ostracized sometimes, prohibited from ministering sometimes, how has teaching conditionalism impacted you in your ministry, if at all? What, what sorts of responses have you received? Well, of course, I have received uh, some uh, very negative responses uh, from people who uh, thought that I was some sort of uh, heretic, and the next thing I knew, they were out telling people that I did not believe in hell. Well, I believe very strongly in hell. It's one of the reasons I wrote this book, Eternity, Heaven, or Hell. I believe very strongly in the existence of hell. Uh, uh, but it, there's this tendency to say, well, this guy just doesn't believe in hell. And so there has been that kind of distortion of the viewpoint. There's been uh, negative responses. But um, overwhelmingly, I have found the response to be very positive. I've found people to say, you know, I've always been troubled by this, and now for the first time I really understand what the Bible says. So uh, very, very positive. Now, I have addressed it mainly in writings, and the people who read the writings have been very positive. It's interesting, though, Chris, that I have only been asked one time in my life to speak on the topic, and that was at a uh, conference where there were going to be a number of speakers, and it was going to be held at a uh, church. And uh, about a week before I got ready to go to the conference, the fellow who had organized it called me and said, well, you're going to have to change your topic. And I said, why? He said, the pastor says he just doesn't want anybody in his church discussing this point because uh -huh. it's too controversial. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I've really never given a public talk about it. I've, I've recorded, I've done audio recordings and and video recordings and written, but uh, people seem to be scared of the topic. <laughs> yeah, that's unfortunate. Well, let's start talking about your book, Eternity, Heaven or Hell. What is it that initially prompted you to write it, and, and what sort of overall impact do you hope that it has on its readers? Well, I've, I've always been concerned about what happens when you die. I never had any teaching, any preaching about, about it. It was just, when you die, you go to heaven. <laughs> and I would 
uh, today you can ask a Christian, what happens when you die? They say, I go to heaven. You say, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> and there's just silence yeah. because they know what that means. They haven't really studied what the Bible has to say about that. And so I really got fascinated with that, and I started studying it day and night. And one of the first in-depth articles that I wrote when I formed this ministry in 1980 was, What Happens When You Die? That took off uh, like a rocket. This was before the age of the Internet, but passed around um, from person to person, word of mouth. And um, we've gone through many, many editions of it since then. Uh, uh, people have been handed this on their deathbed. We've had all kinds of testimonies of how it has impacted people on their deathbed. People want to know what happens when you die, and the average pastor doesn't can't give them any details. All yeah. he can say is, well, you either go to heaven or hell. So that's how I got into the topic and the, to begin with. Yeah, very good. You know, one of the things that uh, I really that really bothers me and, and really kind of frustrates me is how few Christians even are aware that they're going to rise from the dead in the future. You know, they right. they sort of think that eternity is just floating around in clouds in heaven. You know, well, so, that's that's what I was taught, Chris. I was taught that when I died, I went to sleep and I uh, laid in a grave for eons of time, waiting for the Lord to come back. When the Lord came back, the whole world blew up, ceased to exist. My spirit was resurrected, and I went to heaven to float around in a cloud playing a harp for all eternity. Needless to say, I could not get excited about the future. I could not ex get excited about going to heaven. It sounded like the most boring place in the world. And I used to go home and get in the closet and die laughing even when I was 12 years old because I went to a church that taught that the worst sin you could ever commit was to play a musical instrument in a worship service. And here was the pastor getting up and condemning musical instruments and then telling us we were going to play one for eternity in heaven. <laughs> made yeah. no sense to me. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Well, okay, so in, in the introdu introduction to the book, you write about man's sort of innate fear of death. Can, can you tell us about how that serves as a very appropriate introduction to a book discussing heaven and hell, what it is that our fear of death ought to prompt within us? Well, yes, uh, that is the reason I wrote the book. Jesus, uh, the, uh, Hebrews 2 says Jesus came to deliver us from the fear of death, that, uh, uh, that mankind lives in fear of death. And I give a lot of examples in the book of famous personalities who uh, were scared stiff uh, as they approached uh, death. But I find that the average Christian also has great difficulty dealing with this uh, fear of death. And, and, and I, I just see people all the time who are desperately ill and whose uh, only hope is, uh, well, I've got to cling to this life. I've got to cling to this life. I've got to go to another doctor, get another pill, do this, do that. Some way or other, I've got to cling to this life. And, and I keep thinking, well, don't you know what's coming? Uh, Jesus, I mean, Paul said, the sufferings of this time are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that is yet to be revealed to us. Mm -hmm. But when people don't know anything about the future, when they don't know what the Bible says is going to happen to them, uh, they're, they're afraid, and they cling to this life because this life is the only thing they know. Yeah, that's sad. I remember John Wesley once wrote, he said, I, one of the proudest accomplishments of my ministry is that my people know how to die. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's good. Well, okay, but this is the Rethinking Hell project, and so naturally I'm going to want to focus on the chapter of your book, Discussing Hell. But I'd also like to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners a little bit about some of the other topics that you discuss. So what are some of the misconceptions that you attempt to correct in the first three chapters of your book in which you discuss what happens when you die, uh, resurrection and judgment, and what it is that heaven will be like? Well, I get into a, a number of things there, of course. I talk about uh, uh, the uh, fact that uh, uh, one of the things that uh, people are... See, oh, oh, I'm sorry, you talked about the first three chapters. I, I was about to get into the last three. 
uh, yeah, the first three chapters. I talk about resurrection and judgment, about the fact that most people don't understand that there's going to be a bodily resurrection, that there's going to be a judgment for both believers and unbelievers. Uh, they're going to be very different. Uh, the, the judgment for believers is going to be a judgment of their works to determine their degrees of reward, not of their works to determine their salvation. We're saved by grace. Mm. But we are going to be judged of our works to determine our degrees of reward. And uh, the unbeliever, of course, is going to be judged of his works to determine his eternal destiny. And since nobody can be justified by works, then the unbeliever will be consigned to hell. And then I get into a chapter about what heaven is like. And I like to talk about that uh, because, again, people have uh, just really weird ideas about heaven. <laughs> and I talk about how we're going to have a real body and we're going to be recognizable and we're going to live on a, on a new earth. Uh, that has been redeemed and refreshed and restored, and God's going to put his whole creation back the way he originally created it. And so people often find that really amazing because they've never been taught uh, that the book of Revelation means what it says when it says we're going to uh, be living on this uh, new earth for eternity. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Now, that brings us to chapter 4, which is the chapter on hell, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, what about the three chapters following it? Uh, this, this book isn't just, like you said, you, you kind of almost skipped to this question. This book isn't just about correcting common Christian misunderstandings about heaven and hell. The, 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 the chapters that follow the chapters on hell are uh, of some different topics, aren't they? Well, they are. I, I talk about what has is rapidly becoming uh, uh, the Christian viewpoint in America, and that, that, that is that there are many different roads to God. You go out and do polls, even of the evangelicals, and you will find that uh, 40 to 50 percent of them say, oh yeah, there are many roads to God. Of course, and 40 to 50 percent of them also say Jesus sinned. It just shows the famine of the word in the church today. Uh, our, our pulpits are full of people preaching modern psychology and anything but the Word of God, and the average person in the pew just simply is ignorant of God's Word today. And so this is the age of tolerance, and therefore who are we to say that somebody might go to hell? Uh, and so there surely must be many different roads. When Jesus said, I am the only way, uh, you must come through me to get to the Father. So I have a whole chapter on are there many roads to God. I have a whole chapter on how can we be certain of life after death, and that focuses in on the resurrection of Jesus, the evidence of his resurrection, the mm. overwhelming evidence, and that we can be certain of life after death because of his resurrection. And then finally, I conclude by talking about are you living with an eternal perspective, because most of us are so caught up in this world and so caught up with the, the, the problems of the world that we very rarely have an eternal perspective, but we're supposed to be living with an eternal perspective because we are like pilgrims who are passing through this world to the eternal world uh, where we will either uh, be destroyed or we will live eternally with the Lord. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully that sort of summarizes the other chapters in a way that encourages our listeners to pick up a copy of the book for themselves. And uh, at the end of the interview, I'll ask you how they can do that. But now let's talk about chapter four, the, the chapter on hell. Uh, we conditionalists are sometimes accused of trivializing hell, softening it, weakening its significance, that kind of a thing. But the way that you open this chapter suggests that you don't think that what the Bible says about hell is trivial, trivial at all. In fact, you talk about how hell has been trivialized by the world. So tell us about how you think hell has been trivialized by the world and why you think it is instead a very important topic. Well, I, it has been trivialized by the world. As I point out in that chapter, I, can't, I give you a lot of examples of, it, of people trivializing it, and I could have given many, many more, but mm. I, it's just unbelievable the way people 
uh, flip off uh, hell, uh, talking about how, oh yeah, uh, I, I know I'm not doing very well in this life, but so what? I'm going to I'm going to spend eternity partying in hell. Uh, ACDC and their 1979 song Highway to Hell. Uh, they, they they celebrated, and I see this so often on TV. I was watching a famous star the other night who was celebrating his 75th birthday and people were there on TV honoring him and and they said we also have some uh, some video uh, celebrations and they, the first one was hey buddy how are you i'm sorry i can't be there but i'll meet you in hell and we'll party forever mm-hmm. uh, you know th- this is the trivialization of hell uh, it, it's mainly thought of as just a curse word but not a real place and what i try to do is to emphasize that it is a very very real place mm-hmm. and it is a horrible place it is horrible beyond anything that we can possibly imagine it is not to be taken as a joke and i think that one of the reasons it's been another reason it's been trivialized is because the church has ignored teaching about it and uh, so most people don't really know much about hell well, yeah, so that touches on the next question I was going to ask you, because you also mentioned at this point in the chapter that it seems pastors seldom preach about hell nowadays. Why do you think that is? Well, would you want to preach about hell if you believe the traditionalist viewpoint? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I really, Chris, I believe that the reason the average pastor hardly ever mentions hell and certainly never devotes a sermon to it is because he's embarrassed by it. Mm. He is absolutely, and I give him credit for one thing. I give him credit for 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 believing what he thinks the Bible teaches. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It does not teach eternal torment. And and so if you believe that, who wants to get up and deliver a 45-minute sermon on how God is going to torment people for eternity? It, it, you turn God into a cosmic sadist who enjoys pulling the wings off butterflies. And uh, so uh, I, I think they're uncomfortable with it, they're embarrassed by it, and therefore they just ignore it. I see. Well, you, okay, so you go on in the chapter to make, at the very beginning of the chapter, an important distinction, one that I think is too often overlooked by traditionalists when it comes to this debate over the nature of hell. I mean, I can't count, for example, the number of times that I've been challenged by traditionalists based on the parable of Lazarus and the rich man recorded in Luke, in Luke 16. So what is this important distinction that you talk about toward the beginning of this chapter? Well, that is one of the greatest sources of confusion about hell, and you're right, that, that people are so confused about that. And that has to do with translations. Uh, the Bible uh, uh, clearly makes it very clear there's a difference between Hades and hell. Hmm. In the Old Testament, Hades is called Sheol. In the New Testament, the Greek word is Hades. It is a temporary holding place of the spirits of the dead. And um, when a person who is unsaved today dies, he goes to this place called Hades, to a compartment called Torments, and he's held there, his spirit, until the time of his resurrection and uh, at that time he is condemned and put into hell. Nobody is in hell now. Hell is empty. The first ones to go to hell will be the false prophet and the Antichrist, and the third one will be Satan himself. And then it's, it was created as an eternal abode for Satan and his demonic angels. But uh, there, there's a difference between those two. But the problem is that the King James translators, as well as even modern translators, yeah. often translate Hades as hell. They don't do it consistently. Uh, they just do it rather inconsistently. But sometimes they'll call it hell, sometimes they'll call it Hades, when these are two entirely different places. For example, at the end of the book of Revelation, it says Hades is going to be thrown into hell. After it's been so empty. They're, they're not the same place, yeah. and, and we need to keep that clear. Uh, but again, a lot of the confusion is due to improper translations. 
Yeah, yeah, that definitely has been the source of a lot of confusion. Uh, I, I'm hoping one day to see that, that confusion cleared up. Amen. Uh, now, it's at this point that you begin to discuss the duration of hell as believed by traditionalists on the one hand and by conditionalists on the other, and you introduce it by addressing the question of the centrality of this debate to the Christian faith. What do you think that people on both sides of this debate really need to remember as we engage in dialogue with those Christians we disagree with on this topic? Well, I think, first of all, we need to realize that <laughs> there are room for differences uh, of opinion and that uh, we don't need to write off the other side as being apostate. Hmm. Uh, so often, uh, you know, uh, Chris, uh, Christians need to learn how to disagree. <laughs> I get letters all the time about even trivial points of doctrine where somebody will write in and say, well, uh, you know, you're going to hell because you believe that. Or they'll write in and say, well, the only reason you take that position is because uh, you want to make money, and you know that's a popular position. And, that, and, you know, those things are, why must you give, why must you attribute improper motives to those that you disagree with. It's yeah. just not, that's not a Christian thing to do. You have to realize that there is plenty of room on most issues for differences of opinion, and you must be respectful of those differences, and instead of condemning the person, deal with the issue and try to convince the person of, the, of your position on that, on that issue. Uh, another point I like to make to people is that all truth is important but all truth is not equally important. Hmm. Uh, I, I grew up in a church that was very legalistic. We, uh, we were taught that if you didn't take communion every Sunday in a certain way, then you were going to go to hell. Well, let me tell you something. Uh, the truth about communion is important, but it is nothing compared to the truth that Jesus is Lord. Hmm. Not all truth is equally important. And we should rejoice over those who have embraced Jesus as our Lord and Savior and not condemn them to hell because they happen to disagree with us on some point of doctrine. Yeah, very true. So be respectful of other, of other opinions. At least, at, least so, at least when they're not on the uh, non-essentials, or when they're on the non-essentials. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. right. I mean, if you're talking about now, if you're talking about the virgin birth, or you're talking about the, the atonement of Jesus, or you're talking about the second coming, and you're denying those things, yes, that, that's something to get concerned about. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, now, that, there is a certain extent to which that, that answer you gave sort of touches on the next question I want to ask. Um, before moving on to articulate some reasons for holding the conditionalist view in this chapter, you summarize the traditional view of hell and a few of the arguments commonly advanced in favor of it, and I was really impressed because you commended traditionalists who, despite being unhappy about the eternal torment they believe awaits the wicked, nevertheless accept it because they believe it's biblical. And I absolutely agree that they should be commended for doing that, but <clears throat> what I find that's unfortunate is that it seems like that commendation is often not reciprocated. Amen. Uh, many traditionalists, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this, many traditionalists think that, uh, that what we're doing is abandoning the authority of Scripture. Um, they would say that, uh, that our uh, belief is th that we're subjecting Scripture to our emotions or our philosophy, that kind of a thing. What would you say to critics of our view who won't commend us for our commitment to believing what we think the Bible teaches? I would just simply urge them to study the issue, to study the issue. That's what uh, Ed Fudge did to me, and uh, it worked. Uh, that's, it's what I, I, I do with uh, Catholics when I'm talking with them. I just say, read the Scripture. See if what you believe, see if what you're your church should teach you, see if it lines up with Scripture. That's the important thing. So I ask them to study the issue of death, to study the issue of hell, 
and uh, that you will then see that there is a biblical basis for the conditional view. I have found that much of their response is based on either a lack of knowledge about what the scriptures say or a misunderstanding of what we believe. And that probably is the most important thing, the misunderstanding. The most common response I get is, oh, you're just like, a, like the cultists. Mm. You're like the uh, who believe in annihilationism. Uh, that when you're dead, you're dead. No, I don't believe in annihilationism. Annihilation is a teaching that, yes, when you die, you're dead, and that's it. Atheists teach that, uh, that there's no afterlife. I don't believe in that at all. I believe in hell. I believe that people are going to be judged. I believe they're going to be consigned to hell. I believe they're going to be tormented for a, a period of time, uh, proportional to their sins, and, and s- cease to exist. But they just usually write us off as annihilationists, and therefore we're some sort of a cult. Yeah. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I've really uh, appreciated is that while this isn't the case with all traditionalists that I've spoken to on a personal level, many of them have, even though they're not not convinced by the case that we present, have nevertheless told me, you know what, I can see now that there is a biblical basis for what you believe, you know, uh, even if we don't agree. And I really highly respect that. My goal is not to convince them so much as to to get them to realize we're we're presenting what we think is a biblical view, you know. Right. Uh, Okay, well, there's a lot in this chapter that we could go on to discuss, but what I'm going to try to do is just pick out a few things that stood out to me, and then sort of play the proverbial devil's advocate on a few points. So in in listing some of the difficulties that you find in the traditional view of hell, you talk about how it seems to run contrary to some biblical examples, types, or prefigures of hell. Can you tell us about that? Well, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was uh, destroyed suddenly and quickly. Hmm. The flood resulted in a sudden and quick destruction. God wasn't tormenting people, torturing people. Uh, the Canaanites uh, suffered sudden and uh, and quick destu- uh, destruction. There was no provision for torture in the law of Moses. Uh, it was either retribution or death. Uh, sacrificial animals were killed as merc- uh, mercifully and quickly as possible. There were very prescri- uh, uh, you know definitely prescribed ways of doing that. Uh, the uh, and I, I think the whole concept of eternal torment contradicts the description of a second death. Uh, going to hell is described as the second death. Hmm. That doesn't sound like eternal torment to me. Well, particularly in light of the fact that when John and God use that phrase, what they're doing is offering their interpretation of the imagery of the lake of fire. Right. Uh, and right. and if you look at, uh, uh, throughout Scripture, beginning with the life of Joseph, um, who was a dreamer and interpreter of dreams, the interpretation that he would offer of very highly symbolic imagery, the interpretation was always very straightforward. And I think that uh, alternatives to conditional immortality, like traditionalism and universalism, they make the second death more perplexing in meaning than the imagery that it's supposed to interpret. So uh, I agree with you. Um, And and what's interesting about the examples that you mentioned, Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood, um, even Israelites dying and being killed in the wilderness as as punishment, um, these are examples that New Testament authors sometimes call upon as examples or prefigures of hell. You know, Jude and Peter do that very thing. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'll get off my soapbox for a moment. Um, It's all right. (laughs) Now, you go on to give a very brief version of the argument that uh, Dr. Glenn Peoples here at Rethinking Hell has called the biblical language of destruction, and in in which you call in your book the problem of destruction. What is that problem for traditionalists, and why do you think that their understanding of words like destroy and perish isn't really sufficient? Well, that's where you get into spiritualization. When they talk about perish and destroy, they begin to spiritualize those words uh, immediately. And yet the Bible is, is, is very precise in its language. You know, the people will perish. They will be destroyed. Body and soul can be destroyed. Jesus himself said that. Uh, it's, it's just as clear as it can be. Now, let me, let me say this, though. When interpreting any literature, whether it be the Bible or any literature, context is always what determines the meaning of a word. Mm. 
there are places in the Bible where destroy does not mean ceasing to exist. For example, uh, in the epistles of Peter, he mentions the fact that the earth, as it originally was created, was destroyed by water. Well, that doesn't mean it ceased to exist. It means its nature was completely changed by that. Uh, we know that by the context. But when, the, when you look at these scriptures in context, and there's a long of them, a list of them as long as my arm, and you look at them in context, you can see that they are clearly referring to a cessation of existence. I just don't know how you can get around that, and the only way you can is by spiritualizing it. Say, well, it doesn't really mean that. It just means eternal separation from God. That's spiritualization. Yeah, and and along the lines of context, you know, when you mentioned uh, Matthew ten twenty eight, where Jesus says that God will destroy both soul and body in, yes. in Gehenna, um, you know, Doctor Glenn Peoples has done a study and written an article on it uh, at Rethinking Hell, where he demonstrates that the word the word translated destroy there, everywhere that it appears in the active voice to refer to what one personal agent does to another in the in the Synoptic Gospels, it always means something like kill or slay. Yes, and of yes. course that's contextually appropriate since what he was just what he's doing is contrasting what man can't do with what God can do. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, there, I agree. There, there are places where the word seems to mean something like lost or ruined or whatever, but when we look at Matthew ten twenty eight and some other passages, it's very clear that <laughs> what it is that destroy means. Um, anyway, now, in the debates that I participated in, a couple of them, my opening argument for conditionalism was based primarily on the proof text commonly cited in favor of the traditional view, including the no notorious passages from Revelation, because what I've become convinced of is that, with virtually no exception, every single proof text commonly cited by them is actually far better support for our view. And so I really appreciated how you went on in this chapter to show how the symbolism of Revelation 14, 9 to 11, with the smoke of torment rising forever, is actually very strong support for conditionalism. Can you explain that for us? Well, yes, uh, because, uh, again, the Bible says uh, that, uh, for example, in Isaiah 34:10, it talks about uh, the destruction of Edom and says the smoke of Edom's destruction will go up forever. And then you go over to the New Testament and you talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, and Jude 7 says it has the punishment of eternal fire uh, and that the smoke goes up forever. Well, I've been to Edom. I didn't see any smoke. I've been to Sodom, where, where they think Sodom and Gomorrah was located, and pretty sure it was, and that uh, I don't see any smoke. So this has to be symbolic language. It means, I, I'll tell you what I think it means. I think it means that the consequences of sin, that those two, uh, what happened to Edom, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, is an eternal illustration of the consequences of sin when it's unrepented and you rebel against God, that ultimately there's going to be destruction. Mm. Uh, it, I think that's what it's talking about. They are an eternal illustration of the consequences of sin. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, well now let's sort of turn the tables, and, and I'll play the devil's advocate for, uh, on a few points, challenging you. Uh, in summarizing the traditional view of hell early in the chapter, you point out that traditionalists sometimes argue that since man was made in the image of God, and that the image of God cannot be uncreated, therefore man must exist forever. Now you talk about the issue of immortality, but I don't think that I saw a response to this argument about the image of God being unable to be uncreated. So how do you respond to that? Just, just how could a person created in the image of God be completely destroyed? Well, first of all, we're creating the image. We're not gods. Hmm. I'm not a god. You're not a god. We're not going to become gods, unlike the Mormons who teach <laughs> that they will become gods. We are creating the image of God. And since God is spirit, that certainly doesn't refer to our physical being, because uh, 
uh, he is spirit. So it refers to our immaterial nature. It refers to uh, our mental uh, uh, creation, that we are, have free will and reason. It, it relates to our morality, that we have a moral compass, that a conscience, a, a sense of right and wrong. It refers to the fact that we're social beings, that we're created for fellowship with others. Uh, the word says, point blank, we are not immortal. First Timothy 6 says God alone is immortal. First Corinthians 15 says that the saved will not become immortal until the time of the resurrection. Uh, the idea of the immortality of the soul, as you well know, Chris, is an idea of Greek, uh, Greek uh, uh, philosophical thought. Mm. And it was brought into Christianity when Christianity began to convert uh, Greek-thinking people to, uh, to Christianity. Yeah. Uh, but it's not a biblical thought. Yeah. And, and you know, I think people misunderstand what it means that, you know, when, when somebody says something like the image of God cannot be uncreated, I think they're misunderstanding what it means when it talks about man being created in, in the image of God. It means that in certain respects we're created like God. That doesn't That's mean right. the image isn't a tangible thing that can't be uncreated. It's, it, right. it's a way of explaining that we're like God in certain respects. So anyway. Amen. Um, with the exception of the immortality part. <laughs> yes. Now, you list some difficulties that you have with the traditional view, beginning with with how it seems to you to impugn the character of God, because an eternity of suffering isn't just, and you've talked about that several times during the course of the interview. But you point out that traditionalists will sometimes argue that since sin is an offense against an infinitely holy God, that it's therefore infinitely odious and therefore deserving of an eternity of punitive suffering. So how do you think that a finite period of suffering can account for what is allegedly the infinitely heinous nature of one's sin? Chris, the very first time I ever heard that argument, it came across to me as a theological contrivance, mm. and it still comes across to me as a theological contrivance, and it seems to run counter to the Bible's clear teaching that there are degrees of sin and there will be degrees of punishment. And that's about all I can say about it. Well, I'll add a little bit, which is that you and I both, I think, understand that uh, annihilation following the resurrection, that, that that annihilation is an eternal punishment in the sense that it's eternal in, in the results of being Absolutely. punished. Absolutely. Um, and, in and so it, it seems to me that annihilation is, in a sense, an infinite punishment and therefore could account for, even if, even, even, this, even if this weren't a contrivance, and I think that it is, but even if it weren't, and if we did want to admit that it does deserve, that finite sin does deserve infinite punishment, that's what annihilation is. Well, it oh. certainly is, and that's a good point. Thanks for making it. <laughs> uh, another di difficulty that you say that you have with a traditional view in your book is that Revelation describes hell using the phrase the second death, and we've talked about this a little bit, but traditionalists often respond by saying that death has various meanings in Scripture, one of which is spiritual death and separation from God. Some would even go so far as to say that death never means extinction in the way that we traditionalists argue that the second death is. So how would you respond to this argument? Isn't, isn't it more biblical to understand the second death as eternal spiritual death and separation from God? Well, I think just as death is a cessation of existence in this world, the second death refers to a cessation of existence in the eternal world. Again, Matthew 10:28, Jesus says that uh, the both body and soul can be uh, killed in hell. Yeah, but but so but traditionalists, of course, would push back to that and say that death in this life isn't a cessation of existence. Particularly if they're dualists, you know, they're going to say that the the body dies, but it doesn't cease to exist, and the spirit lives on, you know, after death. Well, it certainly is a cessation of existence in this world. My mom and dad are both dead, and I don't see them, and I don't have any inter, uh, you know, uh, any uh, uh, fellowship with them. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I, 
I, I think there's something to that. I, I, it could also just be argued that death is the cessation of life, and the cessation of life that is only extended to the body in this death, in the first death, is extended to both body and soul in the second. All right, well, before we wrap up, I wanted to point out that, like you do in each chapter, you conclude this one with some questions and answers, and I wanted to talk about a couple of those before I let you go. Question number four reads, what about the Antichrist and the false prophet? Doesn't the Bible say they will be subjected to eternal torment? How do you answer that question? Well, yes, it does say that they're going to be subjected to eternal torment, but that doesn't mean you and I are going to be subjected to that. For one thing, um, you have to keep in mind that these two individuals are going to be responsible for the death of one half of all the people on planet Earth plus two-thirds of all the Jews. We're going to be, uh, Bible teaches, we're going to be punished in proportion to our sins. These two people are going to kill more people than Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and Mao put together, and uh, their punishment is going to be much greater. There's also a possibility that we're talking here about demons in human flesh. We know that the angelic world can take on flesh from time to time, and they talk about they, they are called beasts in the book of Revelation who arise from the, uh, uh, from the pit, and so it could very well be that these are demonic beings who are going to be uh, uh, punished forever anyway in, in hell. But um, that's the only thing I can say about that. It doesn't say anything about you and me being punished eternally. That's right, yeah. And and we interviewed uh, another person who holds your end times view. Uh, his name is uh, Robert Taylor, and he wrote a book called John 3.16 Salvation, Rescue from Death. And uh, he he agrees with you on this point um, about them representing uh, demonic beings. Um, and he points out that... Uh, there's no reason why we should see the wicked, the unsaved being thrown into the fire as having the same meaning as the, the, the demonic beings thrown in, particularly since he, John has this thing where he separates each vision that he has with then I saw, then I saw, then yeah. I saw. And there's a difference. that One of those then I saws appears between the devil, the beast, and the false prophet being thrown into the fire, between that and the unsaved. So, yeah, I don't think there's any need to see. And, and, and of course, there's also those of us conditionalists who don't believe that uh, that the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are actually going to be eternal, eternally tormented to oh, begin sure, with. Oh, sure, I understand, yes. Yeah, like Edward Fudge. Anyway, uh, and I really appreciated your answer to the eighth and final question. What do you consider to be the single most powerful argument against the traditional concept of eternal torment in hell? Uh, I, I appreciated it so much that I cited it in an article that I wrote at Rethinking Hell. Tell our listeners what your answer to that question is. Well, very simply, it's the fact that uh, the Bible says that Jesus paid the price for our sins. It teaches that over and over. And what was that price? Well, it was extreme suffering followed by death. It was not eternal torment. And so uh, unrepentant sinners, I think, are going to experience the same thing that Jesus experienced, and that is suffering and then death. Yeah, you know, uh, one thing, uh, Chris, that we didn't touch on that I think is very important is that when I talk about this, people often say to me, well, the Bible says there's going to be eternal punishment. How in the world can you get around eternal torment? And I always like to make the point that there is a difference between eternal punishment, suffering and eternal punishment, and suffering eternal punishing. Mm. There's a big difference. And uh, yes, a, a, a destruction or annihilation at a certain point is an eternal punishment. But there's a difference between eternal punishment and eternal punishing. That's right. And uh, so I, I just think that we need to keep that in mind. We, we, the Bible speaks of the fact that we're going to have an eternal judgment. That doesn't mean that judgment's going to go on eternally. 
It means it's a judgment with eternal consequences. Yeah, and you point out in your book that uh, the author of Hebrews talks about how Jesus uh, attained eternal salvation for everybody and eternal right. redemption for everybody. And I would say that it is, I, I, would, I would go as so far as to say it's heretical to say that for eternity, Jesus will be saving and redeeming the elect, yes. even, a, even okay. after our glorification. Um, right. so, uh, so what that proves is that when eternal... That it was finished on the cross. It was finished on the cross, <laughs> that's right. Uh, so... Uh, anyway, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right, and I'm glad that you mentioned that. Uh, now, let's begin to wrap up. I enjoy giving our guests an opportunity to leave me and our listeners with a parting message of sorts, something that they hope gives us something to think about and which sticks in our minds after the interview's over. What would you leave us with today? God is a God of grace, mercy, and love, but he is also a God of justice and holiness and righteousness, which compels him to deal with sin. And the Bible teaches that God deals with sin in one of two ways, either grace or wrath. Every person listening to this broadcast right now is under either the grace of God or the wrath of God. It's a glorious thing to be living under the grace of God. It's a terrible thing to be living under the wrath of God. It says that when Jesus returns, those who are living under the wrath will crawl into holes in the ground and pray for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them. But it says that those who are living under grace will go forth like calves released from a stall, I'm from Texas, and I've seen calves released from stalls. They don't like stalls. They run out in the pasture. They roll in the grass. They kick their feet in the air. They're happy. We are all living under either grace or wrath. And if there's any person listening to this broadcast who has never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, I would urge them to do it now because the time is late. We're living on board time. Another point I would like to make is the prospect of judgment gives life meaning. If there is no judgment that we're going to face in the future, then life has no meaning whatsoever. But we're going to face judgment, and we need to keep that in mind. Yeah, very good. Where can our listeners go to find you, Lamb and Lion Ministries, Lamplighter, and Christ and Prophecy online? At our website. Our website is uh, lamblion.com, no and in the middle, lamblion.com. And uh, we have a um, web minister who is on that site eight hours a day. He uh, debates with Hindus, Muslims, uh, atheists, and he answers questions about Bible prophecy. And if you have a question, you can either ask him or you can use our high-powered um, uh, search engine uh, to uh, find any topic related to Bible prophecy. We've got hundreds of articles there. We have our television programs posted there. We have um, uh, uh, other videos posted, and you can also sign up for our magazine there. Great. I'll make sure to include links to those in our show notes. And thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you, Chris. It's good to talk with you, and I appreciate your detailed preparation for this. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rethinking Hell. You can find us on iTunes in the podcast section by searching for Rethinking Hell. And we appreciate your reviews and feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter with the handle Rethinking Hell, one word. And as always, you can find articles, the podcast, a forum, and much more at our website, RethinkingHell.com. Please join us for the next episode of the Rethinking Hell podcast.
This podcast is provided by Rethinking Hell, a non-denominational, non-affiliated project produced by a group of evangelical Christians. Individual perspectives given in the podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the project as a whole. We do not endorse any organization, books, or other websites that have been referenced in the podcast. Read our other perspectives at RethinkingHell.com, and remember to weigh all things in light of Scripture.